Well, good morning again, brothers and sisters. Let's uh, bow our hearts and minds once more uh, to the throne of our great and gracious God. Let's pray. Jesus, there are so many loud voices, clamorous voices all around us in our culture. But we have come here to bring our worship to you this morning, and we pray that your voice would break through the clamor and that you would give us ears to hear. And that, Holy Spirit, you would come and break through any ice that has formed around hearts, break through calcifications, and soften and warm our hearts to your heart, O God. These things we pray in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus and ask now that you would commune with us and be with us and speak to us and that we would hear. Amen. Toward the end of his classic book, The Upside Down Kingdom, Donald Craybill describes the upside down nature of the church as compared to the status quo of our world. Craybill describes the true people of God, the church, as those whose generosity has replaced consumption and accumulation. Wow, how different than the status quo. He further describes God's people as those who give without expecting a return. Again, very different than the status quo of the world. Craybill describes God's people as those who forgive liberally as God has forgiven them. Craybill says that the true church is where you'll find people who overlook the signs of stigma hanging on the unlovely and where you'll find people who are moved in compassion for the poor and the destitute. How strange and how beautiful. He says the people of God are those who serve rather than dominate, who invite rather than coerce. And the people of Christ's kingdom, says Craybill, have replaced hate with love, They are people who overcome revenge with shalom. Compassion replaces personal ambition. And, he says, the true church is where you'll find hierarchies flattened and the sword replaced with the basin. Friends, Jesus calls his church to be so gloriously and remarkably different than the world for the sake of the world. This community called church is to appear upside down in its values and in in its virtues and in its ethics when compared with the settled arrangements of this fallen world. In another place, Craybill writes, and I love this, he says, things in the Gospels are often upside down. Would you agree with that? Do you resonate with that? He says, good guys turn out to be bad guys. 
Those we expect to receive rewards get spankings. Those who think they are headed for heaven land in hell. Things are reversed. Paradox, irony, and surprise permeate the teachings of Jesus. They flip our expectations upside down. The least are greatest. The immoral receive forgiveness and blessing. Adults become like children. The religious miss the heavenly banquet. The pious receive curses, shattering our assumptions. Things aren't the way we expect them to be. We're baffled and perplexed. Amazed, he says, we step back. Should we laugh or should we cry? Again and again, turning our expectations upside down, the kingdom surprises us. Close quote. Well, this morning we come to a section of the Sermon on the Mount that's just about as upside down as it gets. What Jesus commands in this passage is, I want to say from the start, is utterly alien to our nature and to our logic. And I also want to say from the start today that to obey this command here, to love our enemies, is frankly, impossible for us unless he spiritually enables us to obey it. We're looking at Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. This section is the final section of a lengthier section that began all the way back at verse 17. And in this final section of that longer passage, we have what is really the climactic paragraph of the entire section. This is the high point. And this is arguably the most difficult of the teachings in this section. Jesus begins in verse 43 by saying, You have heard, you've heard, that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now notice here that as he has done in the past portions of his sermon, Jesus quotes a popular saying that was live in his day that people were saying. Here the quote that people had been repeating and had been adhering to was this, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was a saying that had gained currency in Jesus' day. But where did it come from? Well, the first half of the saying, which is, again, you shall love your neighbor, that came directly from the Old Testament, from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And that verse, Leviticus 19, 18, was a very important verse for Jesus. In Matthew 22, Jesus says that the command in Leviticus 19, 18, to love your neighbor as yourself, was one of two commands upon which hung all the law and the prophets, the other being Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So, love your neighbor was very vital and very important for our Lord Jesus. 
The problem in his day was that people were qualifying what neighbor meant. Many Jewish folks in Jesus' day were trying to limit the meaning of neighbor to the Jewish community only. And Jesus came along and he exploded that false idea. Your neighbor is anyone that you are in a position to help. But now the second half of this popular saying that Jesus quotes here in Matthew 5.43, that bit about hating your enemy. Well, this isn't found anywhere in the Old Testament. The closest thing we have in the Old Testament to hate your enemy is maybe Psalm 139.21, where the psalmist says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? But even there, what the psalmist says is a far cry from commanding people to hate their enemies. Well, there are a few other passages in the Old Testament that maybe could be construed, albeit with a high degree of interpretive gymnastics, to suggest hating enemies, like maybe Second Chronicles 19.2, where Jehu counsels against helping the wicked. Or maybe the imprecatory psalms could be brought into the argument. Those psalms where the psalmist asks God to send judgments on oppressors and on accusers. But at the end of the day, friends, we are hard-pressed to find anything in the Old Testament that directly resembles hate your enemies. It's just not there. No, the closest thing in the time of Jesus to hate your enemy, is actually found outside the Old Testament in a document written by what was called the Qumran community. This was a group of sectarian Jews who lived by the Dead Sea during the time of Jesus, and in one of their documents, which is entitled The Rule of the Community, they talk about hating or detesting the sons of darkness. And for them, the sons of darkness were the Romans who were occupying the land of Israel. The Qumran community counseled their adherents to love the sons of light, to love the Jewish community, but to hate the Gentile Romans who were occupying their land. I think probably... The phrase in the quote in verse 43, hate your enemy, probably it came from groups like those at Qumran who were nationalistic in their outlook. They were Jewish people who advocated for the overthrow of the occupying Romans. They had lived under the cultural and financial pressure of the Romans for long enough, they thought, to hate the enemy Romans, was your patriotic duty if you considered yourself to be an upstanding Jewish person. Well, it's in the next verse, of course, in verse 44, where we have the 
radical, upside-down response of Jesus to this popular teaching of his day. Starting again with, with verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's the popular teaching. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now let's take this piece by piece. Let's reflect thoughtfully on this teaching of Jesus. Love your enemies. Choke. Gasp. No human being under his or her own steam who lives outside of the grace of God wants to obey this command and they will not obey this command. Can a person outside God's enabling power obey this command? To love Enemies runs completely counter to our flesh. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, to love enemies cuts right across our very ideas of good and evil. Why, we ask, would we want to love people who are out for our harm? How could that possibly be good to do that? Why would we express active compassion for the person who tortures us? Now let's be very clear, friends, about the object of our love in this command. Enemies. Enemies are the persons that Jesus commands us to love here. Enemies are people who hate us. Enemies are people who wish harm on us and who harbor hostility toward us. Bonhoeffer said, enemies are those who are quite intractable and utterly unresponsive to our love, who forgive us nothing when we forgive them all, who recompense our love with hatred and our service with derision. Love those people, says Jesus. And the word love here also needs our attention. This word has been gutted of meaning in our culture. In the original Greek, the verb love is what's called a present active imperative verb, which for our purposes means that Jesus is calling us to continual or habitual action. We are to keep on loving our enemies. As Charles Quarles has it, he says we are to love our enemies with an undying love that does not wane or grow cold in the face of our enemies' abuses. Again, my friends, no one does this 
without the supernatural help and grace of God. Are you with me? This ethic of Jesus to love our enemies is coming at us from a place so far beyond us that we will not and cannot obey it unless God himself comes along and sheds abroad his love in our hearts. You must be born again to obey Matthew 5.44. But let's meditate further on the shape of the love for enemies that Jesus calls us to here. Although there is no direct statement in the Old Testament that specifically says, love your enemies, as Jesus says here, you can certainly make the argument that Jesus extracted the concept of loving enemies from what he found in the Old Testament. For example, Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, beautiful passage. That passage commanded the considerate and the compassionate treatment of your enemy's donkey. Love your enemy by treating his donkey with compassion. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22 said, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And of course, those are words that the Apostle Paul would later take up and quote in Romans 12.20. Jesus also would have noticed, as he read his Old Testament, his Hebrew Bible, that Joseph had treated his enemy brothers with love. And Jesus would have observed as well that David's enemy Saul was protected by David when David's men had wanted to attack Saul. Love your enemies. So already in the Old Testament there was precedent for loving enemies. Now what's interesting, friends, in each of those Old Testament cases, and I want you to listen carefully now, in each of those Old Testament cases, we need to land on this for a moment, love for enemies was an active love. It was an active love. This love for enemies described in the Old Testament and commanded now by Jesus in Matthew 5.44, this is a love that has teeth to it. It is an active love, not a passive love. It's not just a mushy sort of sentimental feeling like the kind described in that old uh, Righteous Brothers song from the 1960s. You know, you've lost that love and feeling. <laughs> Obviously, I won't ever make the top 40. That song describes a love and feeling. The kind of love that Jesus is after is not just a feeling. And neither is this love for enemies that we're talking about this morning simply a toleration of the enemy. As they abuse you, you just sort of <clears throat> tolerate it. It's not that. It's not a passive endurance of the enemy. 
No, the kind of love that Jesus commands in our verse is well described and memorably described by Scott McKnight, who says first that we learn about the nature of this love by watching God's behaviors. And what we find there is a love that is, in McKnight's words, a rugged commitment, a rugged commitment to be with someone and to be for that person's good and to love them unto God's formative purpose. One more time, I think it's a great description. The love for enemies that Jesus commands and that is modeled in God himself is a rugged commitment to be with someone and to be for that person's good and to love them unto God's formative purpose. The kind of love for enemy that Jesus wants here is a love that strives. It is a love that works for the other, that doesn't just sit back and remain passive and remain tolerant. In the parallel passage in Luke's Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says in Luke 6, 27 and 28, listen to what he says, love your enemies, do good. Do good to those who hate you. Do you hear the active sense there? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. More activity. And pray for those who abuse you. Yet more activity. You see, friends, it's not enough for us to simply think nice wishes for our enemies. Jesus wants us to actively serve our enemies with, a, with an active love. And in our Matthew text, notice, right after Jesus commands us to love our enemies, he moves to our activity. Notice. Pray for those who persecute you. That is, get on your knees and plead to God from your heart for the person who is torturing you. That's what Jesus is after. For the person who is making your life miserable. For that person who is tearing you down because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. Pray for them. Recognize, friend, that your persecutor is a broken, lost, bewildered person. And pray for him or her that God would give that person the same blessings that you enjoy. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their peace. Pray for their welfare. Pray for the good of your enemy. And what will happen to you in the process of praying is something glorious as well. Your own heart will be transformed. Your attitude toward that person will begin to soften. You will actually find that God will grow in you, can you believe it, a deepening love for that person. 
and a genuine concern for their welfare. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says now, leading into verse 45, this gets very interesting. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters, we could add here, of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Oh, my friends, do notice, very carefully notice, the reason that is given here that you and I are to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. Why should we do this? What is our motive in doing this? So, for example, do we love our enemies in this way so that they might stop harming us and persecuting us? Is that the expected payoff for our love and prayers? Well, that's not what Jesus says here. Or do we love our enemies as Jesus commands here because we know that love diffuses hate and that's always a good thing? That's not what Jesus says here either. What Jesus says here is, notice, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, and I think that this is definitely the sense here, Jesus is saying, and I'm helped here by John Piper, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors and so prove yourself to be what you are, which is God's child. The idea here is that when we love enemies and pray for persecutors, we are displaying to the world the family likeness. Amen? That's the reason we do this. So that we can show off God who indwells us. When we love enemies and pray for persecutors, we children then resemble our Father in heaven in character and in conduct. We demonstrate that we are children of the Father. Like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. Well, how does the Father act? Jesus tells us in verse 45. He says that we have a heavenly Father who does what? Who makes his son, not the son, His son, S-U-N, he makes his son rise indiscriminately, both on the good and on the evil. And we have a father who also sends rain indiscriminately on both the just and on the unjust. Same son and same rain for both the person who loves God and for the person who hates God. Now, Jesus lived in a world full of agricultural pursuits. So here's a farmer who steals equipment from his neighbor and who cheats people when he sells grain. This guy has a really bitter, foul attitude toward his family. And he's made a point publicly to denounce God 
and to express his disdain, his hatred for God's people. And God gives that farmer the very same sun and the very same rain as the guy whose heart is right with God. And I ask you, does it say here in the text, look at the text, does it say here that the evil and unjust person repents and comes to his senses because of God's kindness in giving sun and in giving rain? Does it say that? It doesn't say that anywhere. But God keeps on giving sun and sending rain anyway. 1 Timothy 1.16 speaks of God's perfect patience. (laughs) God sends rain and he makes the sun rise on that awful guy. Even when there is no apparent effect on the guy's morality. Wow. So, friend, do you want to, do you want to uh, show the family likeness? Do you want to do that? Do you want to act like your father? Well, what you do in that case, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, is you do good to your enemy. You bless the person who deserves the opposite of your blessing. You pray for him or her, and you do all of that without paying attention to the effect or the outcome. Are you with me? The truth is that your kindness to that person may not be repaid to you. You may not receive kindness from your persecutor for the kindness that you yourself have shown. But you do it anyway, and thereby you show that you bear a striking resemblance to your Father in heaven. And God is pleased. He is glorified. Jesus continues in verses 46 and 47 with some questions for us. There's a series of questions here. He asks us now, Well, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? (laughs) This is Jesus Notice in the question that there's this idea of reciprocity here. You love me and I love you. I'm going to start singing the Barney song in a minute. I won't. You love me, I love you. I favor you, you favor me. Right? Now, there's absolutely nothing bad about that sort of reciprocal love. It happens all the time. But Jesus is saying here, it's not particularly noteworthy. It's not especially virtuous. It's normal to love those who love you back. You don't deserve to be rewarded for loving the person who loves you back. To love someone who loves you back is something that provides no real barometer of your moral life. That's what he's saying here. He follows that question with another one. And this next question, I think, would have especially raised the ire and stung many people in his Jewish audience. He asks, do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
Do not the tax collectors also love those who love them back? Now, the tax collector, we need to understand, the tax collector in the time of Jesus was the guy who had cozied himself up to the occupiers, to the Romans. The tax collector collected taxes from the Jewish people of Galilee and Perea on behalf of the Roman government. But the tax collectors only made a meager commission for their efforts, and so they sweetened the pot for themselves by arbitrarily raising the already outrageous tax rate so that they could increase their personal earnings. Charles Quarles describes the attitude of the people, of the masses, toward tax collectors. He says this, Tax collectors were despised as traitors and thieves who were ritually defiled. The the mere entrance, he says, the mere entrance of a tax collector into a Jewish home left the entire home in a state of uncleanness. Anything they touched was deemed defiled. Now notice again verse 46. Jesus compares people who only love those who love them back with tax collectors. The Jewish person in his audience wanted to distance himself or herself as much as possible from traitorous, unclean tax collectors. But Jesus says here, hey, Tax collectors, well, they love other tax collectors, (laughs) at least. They love those who love them back. What's the difference between them and you when you love only those who love you back? Verse 47, another couple of questions. Jesus says, if you greet only your brothers, that is... If you give your heartfelt greetings of welfare and shalom only to your kind, if you limit those heartfelt greetings only to the circle of your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Now notice in the text that word more. What more? Are you doing than others? It's a very interesting word in the original Greek. It has the sense of extraordinary or remarkable or above and beyond. So that Jesus is asking here, if you greet only your brothers, what is so extraordinary about that? When you decide to greet only your brothers, what is it about that that surpasses the status quo? What's so unusual about that? And in saying this, what's Jesus doing? He's calling us to the extraordinary. Is he not? He's calling us as his disciples to surpass the normal standards of the world. He wants us as disciples to be remarkable. Are you remarkable? Is there something about your life that is extraordinary? In the spirit, he wants us to be unusual in reaching out in heartfelt love beyond our comfort zone to our enemies. How extraordinary is that? It's very extraordinary. 
If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Again, that last question that Jesus throws out there in verse 47 would sting the Jewish audience who were listening to Jesus that day on the mountain. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And with this word Gentiles in the context... Jesus is referring to the non-Jewish person who didn't care about God's law. Jesus says here, fine, if you you want to limit your wishes of welfare only to your Jewish brothers, then congratulations, you look just like the Gentiles who couldn't care less about God's law. They also limit their wishes of welfare only to their own kind. So, friends, what Jesus is doing in both of these verses, in verses 46 and 47, is he is challenging us. And I hope you hear the challenge this morning. Challenging us as disciples to move outside of our familiar comfort zone where common, ordinary decency is shown only to those who are like us, only toward those who love us. He's beckoning us To act like God. To actively break out of those limits and actually go into uncharted territory and love our enemies and seek their welfare. Who is your enemy? Don't look at anybody else. Ask that question of yourself. Who is my enemy? Can you name your enemy or your enemies? And next question, what effort will you commit to this week to actively show love toward that person. Our final verse this morning is verse 48, which I would venture to say is perhaps one of the most misunderstood verses in the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, it helps us if we see that verse 48 acts as a sort of summarizing statement. Not only for our passage this morning, but actually for the entire section, which began back at verse 21. So after Jesus has talked to us in this, in this long section about anger and about lust and about divorce and oaths and retaliation and love for enemies, he now says, in summary of the whole section, you, must, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is Perfect. At least that's how the English Standard Version has translated the Greek here. The word for us to focus on here, just for a moment, is the word that the English Standard Version and many other English translations render from the Greek as the word perfect. The problem with translating this particular Greek word as the English word perfect is that the word perfect communicates to our ears the idea of moral perfection, which is not the idea here, okay? Jesus is not saying you must be morally perfect as your heavenly Father is morally perfect. A better rendering of the Greek word into English in this context would be the word complete, And I noticed that the contemporary English version does translate the word here as complete. 
Or perhaps another good translation would be to use the word whole here. W-H-O-L-E. Jesus is saying, you must be complete or whole as your heavenly Father is complete or whole. The word in this case relates to the idea of wholeness or integrity. Jonathan Pennington is very helpful here. He says that Jesus here is calling disciples to be whole or virtuous, singular in who they are. Not one thing on the outside, but another on the inside. He says, this isn't about moral perfection, but rather it's about having wholehearted orientation toward God. That's what Jesus is communicating here. The call, friends, is really to an integral holiness. A holy walk with God inside and out concerning all of these matters that Jesus has just talked about. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love for enemies. What Jesus calls us to in verse 48 is a life, listen, where our inner person matches our outward behavior. To borrow the language of Isaiah 29.13, Jesus is after disciples who draw near to God with mouth and honor God with their lips, but who are at the very same time, they have hearts that are very near to God. Jesus desires wholeness and integrity and completeness in his disciples in this way. Now, as we seek to draw all this to a close, I want to return to something that we said near the beginning today, which is, is that this, that this command of Jesus to love our enemies seems so far from most of us. No human being in natural circumstances wants to obey this command, and they will not obey this command. Can they even obey this command in natural circumstances? Most of us, I would say, if we are dirt on us, clear out the veneer of, of piousness for a minute, okay? <laughs> if we're dirt honest, we look at this text and we feel automatically condemned when we read this. We have this feeling of, well, Lord, this really is impossible to actually actively love my enemies. I only see myself failing in my attempts to obey this. Now, I want to say to you that if you feel that way as you read this passage, you are right where God wants you. Why? Because flourishing are the poor in spirit. If you feel a sense of your spiritual poverty when faced with this command to love your enemy, you're in a good place. If you grieve over the fact that you don't have it in you to do this, you're in a good place. If you fly to God and get on your face when you read Jesus here and you say, Lord, I can't ever do this, Without your enablement, that's the place God wants you to be. 
God accepts all of that as worship. He wants you to depend on Him for the grace and the power to love your enemies and to obey the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. This week, make a point of getting on your face before God and pleading with Him for His equipping power to do this. Name your enemy. Very important. Name your enemy or your enemies in prayer and pray, won't you, with earnestness pray that God would change your heart so that you would now see your enemy as an opportunity to love as God loves. Hasn't God modeled love for enemies most supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ. Think of it with me for a moment. In the moment when Jesus was experiencing the agony, think of it, the agony of metal spikes being driven roughly through the nerves on the inside of his wrists and on the inside of his feet, in that horrific, traumatizing moment, What did Jesus do? He prayed for his persecutors. He pleaded to God on behalf of the very enemies who were tormenting him. He prayed, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive these violent men who are now overtaken by evil. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So you see, friends, Jesus walked in the cross what he talked in this this section of the Sermon on the Mount. He loved his enemies such that he prayed for them even as they tormented him. And to get a lot more personal here for a moment, if you're a believer, are you a believer this morning? If you're a believer, you must know that you were once an enemy of Jesus. Yes, you were. As Colossians 1.21 interprets you, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But what did God in Christ do? Did he retaliate against you? No. He died for you. He died as your substitute. He died for his enemies. Let me read the remainder of that passage in Colossians 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled how? In his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. How's that for love for enemies? (laughs) Romans 5.10 says that while we were what? Enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God shows his love for enemies in the most outlandish, unimaginable way that there ever could be. He goes all the way to a torturous death 
on behalf of his enemies. To set those enemies free and to forgive them of all their offenses. Our God is great. Amen. Our God is beautiful. Amen. Our God has done what is upside down. And he calls us to the same wonderful, wonky, upside down grace. Love the one who mocks you. Love the one who threatens you. Love the one who causes you pain and who persecutes you. And the world will be turned upside down. Let's pray. Father, we come as a people confessing to you that this is impossible for us, but with you, all things are possible. You wouldn't have said love your enemies unless it was possible for us to do that, but it's only possible by your enablement and your power. And so I pray for each person here this morning, some Lord who can name their enemy and have been naming and thinking about that enemy through the whole sermon. I pray for them that you would arrest their hearts with this word, that you would give them the strength and the enablement that you command here. Father, help us. We are your people. We have miles to go in our growth as disciples, and we pray that you would continue to walk with us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the man of sorrows who came to reclaim ruined sinners, who sealed your pardon with his blood and made a full atonement for you when you were helpless, may he bless you from Zion all the days of your life and direct your heart into God's love and into the steadfastness of Christ. Amen.